0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics, and the Ford government is getting a lot of pushback for a number of new laws that just passed very quickly. GTA mayors, notably Mississauga Mayor Bronnie Car- Bonnie Crombie and John Tory are warning about the consequences of reducing and waiving development charges that developers have been paying until now to provide the infrastructure you need for new homes. Well, that cash will devolve onto municipalities, and they say they will have to raise property taxes by a lot and or cut services. Uh, then there's the issue of opening up part of the green belt for developing development. Something DOFO promised, very emphatically, not to do. So now, on top of that, the Tories are facing criticism after revelations that party donors stand to benefit. And I'm not talking about chump change here. According to the NDP, one family could make a three-quarters of a billion-dollar windfall for some land they just recently picked up in 2020. When they bought it, it was land that could not be developed. Now it is land that can be developed. And a big bank merger was announced this morning. I was a business reporter in the 90s, and such news or even speculation would get huge scrutiny and lots of criticism today barely a ripple and in ottawa i think the pm is having a good week his testimony at the emergencies act inquiry went over well we'll see if the panel agrees with me as did the new get tougher on china policy
0: and now the recovering politicians panel
1: And now I'd like to go to Lisa Raitt, the former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Gerard Kennedy, a former Liberal MP and Ontario Liberal MPP and Cabinet Minister, as well as Glenda Beermaker, a former City Councillor in Toronto. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Libby. Libby. let us Let us begin with Gerard. So uh, there seems to be a growing amount of, pushback against, uh, I guess, it's uh, it actually uh, more than one uh, bill affecting municipalities. Uh, we have seen that just recently, that government kind of backed off the notwithstanding clause and legislating a QP back to work. So uh, do you think there's a chance that that this will get noisy enough for uh, DOFO to back down on this as well?
2: Well, I think, you know, people have seen two types of Doug Ford. I think there was early Doug Ford, which looked like it was a model that wasn't going to get out of the shop and was going to, you know, be, uh, be uh, not around for very long. And this uh, to do with the Greenbelt really looks like a triple dumb uh, thing. It's a a breaking a promise. There's no rationale for it. And I don't know how Mr. Ford or the people advising him and the people also in the cabinet think that people aren't going to notice the ramifications of this. Uh, people are going to make a huge, huge amount of money at the very time they're talking about making housing cheaper. Uh, And the fact that some of those people can be linked to the uh, political well-being of his political party uh, makes no sense, that the legislation's already passed and none of those safeguards are in place, Uh, none of which really touches the integrity of the the basic question, which is we need the green belt. We need to protect the water supply. Uh, We need to put limits on growth so it'll take place in an organized fashion. Uh, and the town of Aaron woke up today, uh, I guess, shaking their head that, that it's all all the land that, that Mr. Ford wants to keep or put in the green belt to make up for what is going out to the parties that have been talked about uh, to develop uh, is coming from one place. So I, it, it's a, it really is a head shaker. So yes, I would say there is a chance this would have to be walked back because that's what the second Doug Ford Looks like is somebody that appraises what's going on and gets out of it before the water gets too hot,
1: Uh, Lisa. I mean, they do have a rationale, and I wonder what you make of it. So, Steve Clark, the municipal affairs minister, says that developers in those fees, like there or the price of the house is 116,000 uh, dollars higher because of those development charges and and if he takes them off those nice developers will pass it down to uh customers who will be able to buy their houses cheaper and they say opening up the green belt they need that land um and the critics say that it it won't do anything to make houses more affordable what's what's your view I think that's the the
3: age-old hope of every politician when they alleviate some costs onto the private sector that they hope it's going to get passed through to the consumer. The federal liberals and the federal conservatives have done that on on um, telecommunications, on your cell phone bill, right? Promises that we're <laughs> going to cut your cell phone bill by 25%. No, I'm it's laughing. True. And then whether or not it gets passed down is another question. And that's where the politician has to make sure that they have the ability to, you know, bring down the heavy if they don't. So there's a whole bunch of laws that you have always in your toolbox so that if you say, we're going to get rid of the development charges, or we're going to alleviate those on you, uh, if you don't pass it along, if you don't have a good explanation, then the government can come in and, and impose a tax on you. And whether or not that's, that's, uh, what the end will do. There's always that, that other shooter drop. So when it comes to it. So that's probably how politicians think their way through these things, which is it is a private sector beast and you're going to try to make them pass it on through. And do you have the tool to make sure that they do that? That's, uh, that's the gamble that this government is taking. That's what they're saying. Of course, people are far more cynical these days. Like you you laugh, right? I mean, yeah. it's, well, it is, it with is, good reason, more, I think. I think so. I think you're right. I mean, I think, but to tell you what the state of mind is in the politician, that's what they're thinking, that it will actually get passed down because that's what, that's what these companies are telling the government. Of course, we're going to pass along to the person. Um, and if they don't, then the government's in a whole bunch of trouble.
1: And what about the other side of it, that it is really uh, causing a big or bigger hole for the municipalities? And uh, will they back down on that, or will they say, okay, we'll just—we'll give you the money, we'll make you whole?
3: Yeah, super interesting to me to see how, how this tension is going to play itself out, because these development charges, I live in Milton, Ontario, which has basically lived off of development charges. For the past 20 years, uh, you see the explosion in people who have moved out to this part of the world. And it comes an incredibly important part of the capital budgets of municipalities in order to put in the, the uh, services that they need to put in. Whether or not they can get by without them is going to be another question. Does that mean they just turn to the government and say, well, we need more money for capital infrastructure? And, and there goes the, the circle of life. I think in all of this, the biggest problem for the government that I can see is the promise one. It's the promise you made to not open the green belt very clearly, very vociferously, that you are now having to explain why you're going back on it. That's the one that hits you um, electorally. And the rest of it is important, but they're all just kind of arguments to support the, the bigger piece, which is you said you weren't going to do it, and now you've done it, and we're not
1: better off. That's a big problem for them. Yeah. And, 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 uh, it's, I'm, I'm reminded that I, I, I'm always, uh, laughing at their, the Orwellian names they give to their legislation. But, but it, one of their, I don't know, campaign or whatever, I think was promises made, promises kept. I mean, I'm sure the opposition is already, uh, fiddling around with, uh, turning those into some interesting ads. Uh, Glenn, what do you see as the biggest Peril for the Ford government here? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, uh, uh, uh,
4: certainly, I see many, many perils in this. This attack on the Greenbelt is insane. It's a disaster. It's a betrayal of the people who elected the government. The Greenbelt was enshrined in law to make sure that those farms and those forests were protected forever in trust as a sanctuary to protect our drinking water supply. And before the election, the premier said, we will not touch the green belt. Couple months after the election, we're opening up thousands and thousands of acres under the excuse that we need more housing. And that excuse uh, just simply is not true. Um, you know, people talk, oh, we need more affordable housing. Does anyone, i uh, certainly not on this panel, because I think we're, <laughs> we're attuned to these policies. I don't think anyone on my street believes for a second that any of those $2 million homes they build on the Greenbelt are going to solve the affordable housing crisis. They're not going to provide more uh, rental apartment buildings. They're not going to do anything. Uh, What they're going to do is give a few developers hundreds of millions and billions of dollars of extra profits because they happen to be good friends with people in power. (coughs) It's a horrible decision on that front, in terms, as a former city councilor, in terms of waiving those development charges, again, go up to the municipalities in the 905 Belt, look up the price of a house. They're, they're $1.5, $2 million, $3 million, and they're talking about, oh, well, if we, if we just could only knock off $120,000 of development charges off the price, you know, we, we'd be able to uh, provide housing for people. Absolutely not, because when those people move into those houses and they flush their toilet They expect the water in their toilet to go down a pipe and into a sewer and to be treated at a plant before it's dumped out into Lake Ontario. It's not like the government's collecting that charge to sit on it and do nothing and play tiddlywinks. Governments collect that money so you have a sewer pipe. So when you flush your toilet, your waste goes somewhere so that when you turn on your water in the morning to have a shower before you go to work, water actually comes out of the shower tap you need to pay for water supply. You need to pay for the electricity to hook up your house. When you look out your window and you see people driving up and down a street, it's because that money has been collected by the city to pay for the roads and the traffic lights and the computers and all those things that all of us need in order to live in a house. So taking money away from the government and not touching the developers is a complete disaster. So uh, I think this will bring down the Ford government. It's going to be a long four years, but the the, the outrage across the GTA will cost this government seats and will likely cost them the next election.
1: Okay, uh, let's go to Susan in Toronto. Hi, Susan. Hi. I just wanted to say this, and then I'm going to
3: hang up. Um, first, I just wonder: can they take Doug Ford out
1: right now? I mean, can he, <laughs> no. or do we have to wait? An uh,
5: election you have and, to you
1: have to wait until the next election and uh, yeah oh, that's too bad because what do you um, think do you think this will result in any more affordable homes oh please you know
3: I just that's my comment I live in a you know small apartment I'm not gonna have a home sorry about the noise but I see apartments condos homes going up everywhere and it just breaks my heart because nobody that is a moderate income or you know doesn't isn't pretty wealthy can afford these prices it's and you know what it's not going to stop it's not going to end and i i really believe that is the future and that sounds awful but that's what i think
1: okay Susan. Thanks for that. Uh, Gerard, you, you know, uh, there are some uh, people at the municipal level saying that actually it might result in less affordable housing because the city subsidizes that, and they're going to have less money because of the lack of development charges.
2: Well, this is certainly a, you know a, a broken idea um, that you can somehow take money from the municipalities and it doesn't have to get made up somewhere, there aren't any consequences. But I'd like to go back to the caller who's with the head shake about who's this for and who's it against because you know, uh, uh you know, what just but to your point, I mean, the property taxes for uh schools were frozen and uploaded and whatever, but did they really stop? The affordability, of, uh, in terms of the tax rates on various uh, housing and business, no, some of it was is is, is still uh, continued to be uh, a difficulty for people in different municipalities, and the development charges are part of how you know. And I hear what Glenn is saying, and I'd like to know it's correlated really with the cost, and those costs have gone up though a lot. And the question is, who is, you know, this time maybe to have that more basic question, who benefits from, you know, these ever-growing prices of, of housing? Uh, and and it, it is a lot of us, a lot of people that see their, their house values go up and so on. There's, and, and, you know, municipalities to some extent avoid tougher choices around taxes and costs. But, it, you know, we really are excluding people like your caller who just give their head a shake and say, well, where do I fit into this? This isn't my my place anymore. I marvel at who's going to take my place because uh, we don't fit in. And, and the food bank lineups are growing. And
1: I was going to ask about that. They're For,
2: fundamentals. for yeah.
1: those of you who uh, don't remember, uh, Gerard was the original CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. Uh, uh, full disclosure, uh, we we used to uh spend time with him uh way back <laughs> 30 years ago and i remember Gerard uh your first thing was this has to be temporary i have to be out of a job soon and uh, here we are more than 30 years later
2: well and I, I i would hate for people to be fundamentally discouraged because uh thanks to the child benefit and other things food banks did uh become less necessary and and you know they they existed because of the goodwill of People to not have people go hungry amidst all this plenty, just like we should get agitated about people not having a decent place to stay. But, and it worked to some extent. Uh, and those numbers went down, but they are making their way back up. Uh, and the worry that I have personally is what will happen when there's a recession and when people's capacity to give and help uh, goes away because the food is, is, is not the difference in the suffering and the hardship that people go through and you know when your husband had a secret identity pulling pulling food orders uh well he was running the business uh part of the globe and mail i mean and a whole bunch of other people they were shaking their heads and wondering And, and what i worry about right now is that is that there aren't isn't as much wondering going on as much people sort of motivated to to do something and agitated because the food bank's a little bit woven into the fabric, but more to the point, uh, people living in extreme poverty seems to be getting written in. And I, and I really do see a, 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 the conditions for a, a tsunami of, of, of putting people in difficulty. And those effects stick around. Uh, hungry kids and people who are deprived and feel left out of society for any period of time, it's much harder to get back in. And they don't feel very great about the place that treats them like that.
1: Well, uh, Lisa, I mean, we've, we've just seen a number of reports from food charities about record food bank use. Gerard just said he's worried about a recession. Just, uh, I think this morning we heard from the parliamentary budget officer in Ottawa saying that the government, uh, has not been fiscally prudent. They've been spending too much money and not leaving enough in reserve for that recession that a lot of people are expecting, um, and uh, the NDP also is is on about so called greedflation, especially in grocery stores. Again, how do you see this issue percolating?
3: I think I think what the first thing happens, which is what a lot of families are doing, is they're looking at their own finances, and they're they're very much aware of what's coming in, and they're aware that more is going out, and they're making life choices. And as they make life choices to not spend as much on different things, that's when you get a recession. And you can see the fact that tech companies are slimming down. There's lots of places that are going to be slimming down in terms of people losing their jobs, and that's going to impact as well. So I believe the economists, when they say that we're heading into a recession in the new year, because I think people are behaving that way right now, they do feel tight. And I think we're also just waiting for that other shoe to drop. I know I mentioned that before, but the other shoe to drop is the cost of electricity and home heating. That is going to be, I think that'll be a big surprise for people coming into the new year. And that's going to impact their, their, it's going to impact their consumer confidence. And when consumer confidence goes down, less people are buying less money in the economy. You know the deal, Libby. Yep. And that means recession. So that's. That's kind of what we're, what we are looking at. Now, whether or not there's going to be more people relying upon food get banks, I would assume so as the unemployment rate ticks up and it will, um, more people are going to be reliant. I, have been reading a lot lately about, uh, millennial, not millennials, but Gen Z, which my kids are and how really unprepared they are for, for a recession and figuring out where they're going to be making their adjustments and how they're living. And uh, that's going to be definitely. A group of a cohort to watch in terms of how they react to, to the recession and what pressure they put on the government. Like what is it what they're going to want in order to feel better again? Cause they're, they're a pretty strong voice and it may be a different fix than what we've seen in the past.
1: Well, yeah, and it, it's also, uh, they've been uh, coming up and right now we have, we still have, I think, these labor shortages that I actually see businesses that have cut back on hours because they don't have staff. And, mm-hmm. um, it, it will be a big change for younger people yeah. who are used to writing their own tickets and having their own demands. If suddenly, uh, they're out of the work and work is, is, is not that plentiful. Uh Glenn, have you thought about that?
4: Um, <clears throat> yes, and I think <coughs> excuse me, I, I think the NDP asks a very good question. You know, what is fair? You know, is a billion dollars per year in profit for law reasonable? I and I don't know the answer to that question. Um, because I know that loblaws and the gas companies, et cetera, they're not charities. We're private sector companies. We live in a market economy. When I go to the grocery store and buy some broccoli and some cauliflower, I know the store is making a profit. I mean, that's the way our society functions.
1: Well, that's so the I'm way they have sure a store, how too. i we
4: regulate things like this to make sure that companies don't take advantage of inflation. Does it surprise me that some gas companies and oil companies and grocery stores are using inflation as an excuse? To charge me more and to suck more money out of my pocket and put it into their pocket, I'm not surprised. They're not charities; they're companies that want to maximize their profit. And if they can charge me more money for cauliflower, they're going to do it. So the question is a good one. You know, how do we create, uh, a, you know, a community in Canada in Toronto um, that that is fair? and that we don't have people using food banks. You know, I'm going to say what Gerard said, you know, he said it 30 years ago, I'll say today, we shouldn't have people going to food banks, but we do. And that's a failure of our system. But I don't know the answer and how, how we eliminate them. I think, you know, we can all say, well, no one should be that poor, there should be a minimum wage or a living wage. But so far, you know, for 30 years after Gerard Put the question out there. We're still trying to solve it, and it's it's not solved today.
1: You know, uh, on the issue of law laws, uh, part of it is accounting, and part of the issue is when they are accused of of profiting from inflation on groceries. They say, "Hey, it, it, it's not the groceries." uh it is our more profitable businesses like shopper's drug mart where and they don't break any of these results out and uh the criticism is that that makes it impossible to tell and uh you know i am definitely not an accountant and there are arguments about whether they should be allowed to do that uh but i i, th- I think the opacity of of results for a lot of these companies are a big part of the perception problem, Glenn.
4: Yeah, I, I think it is part of the perception, but it's it's a very difficult, foggy ghost to capture. I mean, Loblaw's makes a, a gross is about fifty billion dollars a year. They say their net earnings are around a billion dollars a year. Yeah, you know, I I don't know who amongst us near uh, mortals could figure out a fifty billion dollar budget and figure out what's real and what's not real and what really is profit and what's hidden costs. There's lots of ways for accountants, they specialize in this stuff, to make it look like a company makes no money, even though they're raking in money. So it's very, very difficult. I mean, I don't think, you know, we we have a Trudeau in office right now. Are we going to go back to the last Trudeau again 30 years ago to say, maybe we should have wage and price controls? I I think that didn't work out very well in our country. And I don't think many people want to go back there. So the question is, how do we on this panel and people listening, how how do we deal with somebody like Loblaws or the oil companies when we go to pump gas? What is a fair profit for them to make? I, I don't know the answer to that question. All I know is I do go shopping, I do put gas in my car, and I willingly pay all of these people uh, money so that I can drive my car and that I can have cauliflower and broccoli when I have my dinner. So it's it's a very, very tough question. What I don't want to see is people living in poverty. I don't know how much Loblaw's makes, and at one level, I don't care. What I want to make sure is that everybody in, in you know, in Ontario and in Canada, that no child has to go to bed hungry, that that people aren't having to go to food banks. And so far, we as society, all three political parties, all of us, good people trying to make the world better, we have all failed in terms of making a, a, a an equitable society where people don't have to go to food banks.
1: Okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls. We've got Angela in Woodbridge. Yes, hi, how are you?
3: Fine. Um, I have two comments. Uh, first of all, there have been many permits that have been issued for buildings, and I'm just wondering why the PC government isn't going after builders and telling them, look, you've got permits, get building." I know it's the economic uh, forecast, but, you know, they should really be going after them. And another thing is, as I just read now, that Mayor Tom uh, Marakis in Newmarket He just uh, tweeted that he'll be asking council to consider adding a new line in the 2023 budget, provincial housing tax. This will represent the tax increase due to the impacts of Bill 23. I guess this is to let the residents know that you can thank Ford for this tax.
1: Well, exactly, and don't don't blame the one of. Uh, we we're going to be talking to Carolyn Parrish a little later in the show, and one of one of the, the things I think it was uh, she was the one who tweeted it, <laughs> telling her fellow councilors to enjoy themselves now because they will be thrown out when residents blame them for the tax increase instead yeah, of Doug guess, Ford. So I guess that extra line is uh, an attempt to keep their jobs. Angela, thanks for your call. Uh, let's go to Pat Pat in Toronto. Hi, Libby. Uh,
2: it's certainly a lot of issues being yeah. raised today. I mean,
1: <laughs>
2: and I don't think we can solve all of them, but could we just deal with one that seems to be hot at this point? Build some old folks' homes? I mean, that's where we need some housing at this point. Let's pressure there. We have a society that is aging. We're all staying alive a lot longer because of all the technology in this world. We know we need those homes. Why don't we just stick with that at
3: this point?
1: Okay, Pat. Thanks for that. Yeah, we were talking about Bill 7 and nursing homes yesterday. uh, And... uh, A lot of people say the real issue there is uh, we need more in the community. We need more of everything. I'm looking at the clock. We're just about out of time, so I'm going to go around and give everybody 20 seconds, starting with Gerard.
2: Well, one thing I hope people don't do is get discouraged that we can't fix things because, you know, it's yes, it's 40 years since food banks, but there's a lot of stuff that happened in between, and there's a lot of healthier Kids out there and people that uh, that bounce back faster because people cared, and uh, I don't think we're 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 locked in, but we certainly need a government that is responsive at every level. And uh, it's hard to see policy like we've heard about not making sense. You can deconstruct where food's coming from and those prices. You can get some competition happening in the in the grocery sector, and that'll expose those costs pretty quickly. there, there are things that can be done.
1: Glenn, your twenty seconds. <clears throat> uh,
4: I, I certainly think... I, I hope the government changes its path uh, on the Green Belt because this this decision to, to change the legislation, to undo legislation, to allow the destruction of the Green Belt and paving over farmers' fields is completely wrong. It will not solve any part of the housing crisis, and only the richest of the rich will ever buy a house on the Green Belt. Average people never will. If we want more housing, and I certainly do go into the existing urban envelopes where we have schools and playgrounds and libraries and community centers already built. We don't need to rebuild it all on the green belt. Use the existing urban envelope to make even better, healthier, more vibrant communities.
1: Lisa Wright, last word to you. Thanks, Libby. I think
3: we are very challenged with respect to housing. Pat, I think, had a really good point in terms of making sure that there is appropriate housing for people as they age. One statistic that I I read on the weekend is that a lot of the housing out there has uh, people like me, single, um, older, living in a a pretty large house by myself, but nowhere else to go realistically in terms of of where I would like to downsize to or, or how I would downsize. I think there's a lot of folks in that position, and we should start taking a look at that different age group between 50 and 70 and where where they can move to in order to free up the houses that they have for for families as they grow.
1: Okay. Thank you so much to our recovering politician panel, Lisa Wright, Gerard Kennedy, and Glenn Deermaker. De we'll talk soon. Okay, thanks, Libby. bye. Okay, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, I think people know today is the day of our radiothon. And I will be talking to the director of research from the Princess Margaret Cancer Center about some of the latest advances in treatment and in research when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Today is our second annual Princess Margaret Radiothon on Sumer radio on classical FM and our listeners know about my personal history of cancer and how the doctors at Princess Margaret saved my life against some very bad odds and here I am 14 years after being diagnosed with stage three pancreatic cancer a disease that unfortunately still has a very low survival rate and every time I check in with doctors and scientists at the PMCC I find out about yet more advances in research and treatment for cancer patients. Uh, so now I'd like to welcome Dr. Aaron Schimmer, Director of the Research Institute at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center and a physician in hematology oncology at the Center. Dr. Shimmer, thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you. It's great to be with you.
1: So what are uh, some of the main things that you are working on now?
5: So it's been exciting past year at Princess Margaret where we're continuing to make breakthrough discoveries in our understanding of cancer, why cancer happens, why it occurs, why it progresses, why it responds to treatment, and unfortunately sometimes why it doesn't. And then translating those discoveries into the clinic in the form of new treatments for our patients and new diagnostics. And we've had exciting discoveries over the past year. I'll tell you about them if you wish and I'm yes. sure we will make some going forward into the next year.
1: Yeah, uh, I want to hear about them. And I think also uh, things have gotten easier. I'm talking about uh, genetic profiling of tumors. Uh, I remember back when that started, it was really expensive, took a long time, but, but that part of things has really come a long way, hasn't it?
5: Absolutely. To to that point, specifically, if you go back 15, 20 years, it took a billion dollars in about seven years to understand the genetic code of a given uh, cell or uh, cancer. Today, for under a $1,000, we can do that exact same test, and it takes us not seven years, but three hours and that's an amazing breakthrough. Why is that important? Because it now allows us to understand the genetic mutations in individuals' cancer cells. Now, these are not generally mutations you get from parents to pass from the kids, but things that happen spontaneously in the cancer cell that drives that cancer progression ultimately allows us the ability to pick up and detect cancer early and refine treatment for those specific genetic mutations in those cells.
1: Yes, because uh, certain drugs sort of target certain things and not others.
5: Yes, exactly. You know, p- previous chemotherapy, which I must say is very successful for many patients, you can think of as a large sledgehammer, you know, trying to, to target many broad pathways in those cancer cells. But now, by understanding the specific defects in those cells, one can make drugs that target specifically th- those abnormalities in the cancer cells. And then by doing so, eradicate the cancer cells, but spare the normal cells and decrease side effects while having better or at least the same effectiveness.
1: What were some of those exciting advances you uh, are about to tell me about?
5: Ah, well, you know, look, we could go on for hours because, you know, every year our investigators uh, publish a thousand papers in the medical literature, and we don't have time for all thousand, but let me, I'll tell you very briefly three. So, work by doctors uh, Koca and Kisslinger, who in the area of pancreatic cancer have understood new biology for pancreatic cancer, that in fact the normal cells surrounding the pancreatic cancer influence the biology of the disease and ultimately the response to chemotherapy. Work, for example, by Dr. Catherine O'Brien, who's discovered that cancer cells can actually sleep or hibernate like bears, and new strategies to wake up those sleeping cancer cells and zap them selectively. And finally, clinical advances by Dr. Cho and Deeperow, who've developed a new combination of surgery and radiation to treat mesothelioma, a very aggressive cancer of the lining of the lung.
1: Uh yeah actually I mean uh, we just actually heard uh, uh there was a report out of Britain that that the queen actually had I think uh um that cancer uh and that was the cause of her death um so you've got advances in these three cancers now I think uh There have also been some advances in imaging making it easier to see these things.
5: Yes, exactly. And one of the challenges with imaging, of course, using even latest imaging techniques, whether it's CAT scan or MRI, is that your ability to see the cancer is critical for your ability to ultimately intervene with radiation or surgery. But the more precisely you can see it, the more effective you can be at early stage diagnosis. So our advances in imaging using, you know, modifications of CAT scans or MRIs or targeted agents that would hone into the cancer cells and essentially light up on imaging devices are allowing us to see cancers at earlier stages, offering the opportunity for more early detection, which translates through surgery or radiation into more cures for our patients. Uh,
1: What are you uh, working on? What are you hoping uh, to uh, get to in the coming year?
5: So, over the coming year, I, I think you're going to see us continuing to invest in our three main areas of cancer discovery, research which represents understanding uh, fundamental mechanisms of why cancer happens and progresses. and that then's important because that then ultimately leads to new treatment algorithms and new diagnostics for cancer that if you take AML, leukemia, a disease that I treat, if you go back 10 years, there were really only a couple drugs that were used for the treatment of this disease. But just in the last few years, we've seen eight new treatments being approved. And the reason we've had those eight new treatments is the investments that we've made in the understanding of the biology of leukemia. And so now, you know, as we go into next year, now's really the time to double down on our investments in the understanding of cancer, because that's what's going to produce those game-changing treatments for the years to come.
1: We've, in past years, we've talked a lot about immunotherapy, which, as you say, is more targeted treatment than chemo. And uh, it started just working for a small number of cancers. Uh, have there been any additional cancers that can be treated successfully with immunotherapy?
5: So immune therapy is one of those game changers in cancer treatment and immune therapy comes in a variety of forms. There are antibodies that one can deliver to patients and these antibodies bind and attack cancer cells. In some cases they bring the cancer cells to Sorry, they bring the immune cells to the cancer cells. And in some cases, you can use genetically engineered cell therapy where you inject into patients cells, which are now programmed uh, to seek out and destroy the cancer cells. And you're correct that this immune therapy has traditionally been in the area of blood cancers. Many blood cancers benefiting from these types of immune therapy.
1: And lung, yeah.
5: It, it, but but we're seeing, yes, exactly some of these antibody therapies now advancing into other solid tumors, we call them lung cancer, kidney cancer, et cetera. And there's work, for example, at the Princess Margaret by scientists such as Dr. Naoto Hereto, who's developing new genetically engineered immune cells that are going to be able to seek out and destroy not just the blood cancers, which is important, but also other solid tumors uh, similar to the ones that you've alluded to.
1: And uh, anything else you want to leave us with?
5: Well, I, I just want to thank you, uh, for, you know, for your support of uh, Princess Margaret that, you know, we've got an incredible group of clinician scientists here, but it's really thanks to the generosity of you and your listeners that we're able to do such incredible research at the Princess Margaret. So thank you so much for, uh, for having me on the show.
1: Okay, and thank you for coming on the show. Very interesting, Dr. Aaron Schimmer. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, and remember... Today is Giving Tuesday, and we encourage you to donate and give what you can to the Princess Margaret Cancer Center by calling either 1-888-388-3308. Let me repeat that, 1-888-388-3308, or by visiting classicalradiothon.ca. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to drill down on some of the numbers, some of the big hole resulting from that new legislation with uh, Carolyn Parrish of Mississauga.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we discussed with our
1: panel, the Ford government is getting a lot of criticism about Bill 23 that just became law yesterday. Mississauga has put some numbers behind their complaints. They say the city will lose about 20% of its capital budget or $885 million over 10 years and that plugging that hole would require a 5% property tax increase every year for at least those 10 years and uh, not ruling out cuts to city services and capital projects. So what do you think? Mississaugans out there, 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Mississauga Councillor Carolyn Parrish of Ward 5. Carolyn, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So, first of all, where do these numbers come from? Well, the numbers come from the fact that we're
6: losing development charges on most of the units in the categories they've listed. And they will be setting the DC limits uh, for the rest. And it will be obviously not very flexible. Right now, our DCs are set. DC by a really sorry, strict process no. of evaluating the, the project, and it's not, it's a, a very tight math formula. It seems now that with Bill 23,
1: they're going to just do a blanket formula. Okay, DC's development charges, right? Sorry,
6: DC's just okay. development charges, oh. and they also are removing parkland fees. So it's a big hit.
1: That's, uh, and uh, how many, uh, right now, do you have an idea of how many units are, uh, have, have either permits or are under development in Mississauga? We have 40,000 approved units, particularly a lot of them
6: in the downtown core, where there's no height limits and no density limits. And some of them have, the lands have flipped three and four times from one developer to another since the 90s, and nobody's building anything.
1: And, and why is that?
6: I guess they're waiting to see what the market goes up or down. Who knows what the business decisions are, but those those lands have been sitting there since about the middle 90s with no restrictions on them. So uh, we can't figure out why they're not building them, but they aren't
1: and uh is is that is the what you take from that 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 this was not necessary that uh if if those lands are not being built on it's a business decision as opposed to uh too much red tape or whatever
6: well yeah, i wouldn't misconstrue my comment as new housing is not necessary it's definitely necessary we've got problems um all over ontario where we need more housing that's that's not an issue i'm not and i'm not disputing that I'm saying this uh, piece of legislation hits you over the head with a hammer when, in actual fact, the developers are the ones that are are sitting on land, making money every time they flip it and building nothing
1: hm that's uh, a very interesting aspect uh, on to the property tax I mean uh, here on this show we've had a lot of discussions about uh, lack of revenue tools for cities, and that's you know one of the really only ones. Uh, it, I mean, that is a, a big chunk. I mean, 5% property tax hike. I don't remember that kind of a big hike in a very well, long not, time. It's not just going to be 5%.
6: You've got the normal increases in your regular budget year over year. You've got uh, gas prices going up. You've got salaries going up modestly. So that this uh, extra is just on top of that. And it's for 10 years. It's 5% every year for 10 years. If you look at most of the houses in Mississauga are valued around the $1 mark now. You add 5% to that, and it's automatically $400. And then we have the regional additions. We haven't even heard from the region of Peel yet. There are other body that raises DCs, development charges, and also raises taxes. So the 5% sounds optimistic, but it's going to be much more than that.
1: And the Municipal Affairs Minister has also put a number on things. He says that $116,000 of every house price is because of these development charges. Uh, And uh, I guess the theory is that if, if they remove that, then the developers will pass that savings along. What do you make of that argument? Well, I hate
6: to be rude, but I think that's a
1: joke. Um Right now, on a $900
6: per square foot condo, $235 goes to automatically profit to the builder, $150 to development charges, parkland, and all of it grouped together. And what's going to happen is the $150 goes off, so now the profit to the developers will be $625 per square foot, and the rest of that money, the $150 per square foot in a large condo, will go to the, the current taxpayers who are going to have to make up the difference. Otherwise, there's no sidewalks, there's no sewers, there's no roads, there's no community centers, everything that makes a community livable. Uh,
1: yeah, so you're basically you're saying you don't believe that developers will pass that savings along. Absolutely not. And I've heard um, everybody who knows anything about real estate keeps
6: saying that the market sets the price for houses. We just had a boom, it's cooled off. The market will set the price for what the developers build, and then all that happens is the 150 per square foot that comes out of it goes right on the local taxpayers who are already living in Mississauga.
1: And uh, do you have any confidence that if this doesn't change, that the higher levels of government, the provincial government, and maybe federal government will make cities whole?
6: I don't believe that at all, because the federal government has offered uh, $4 billion to the provinces, so Ontario's portion of that is $1.4 billion, But our cost over the next year, uh, 10 years is closer to $900 million. And when last I checked, uh, there are a lot of other, there's 29 other big cities in Ontario. They're going to have to split that pie really tiny.
1: So what's the plan? Uh, I heard uh, Mayor John Tory of Toronto push back against this particular thing. Uh, have you been in contact with other municipalities? Is there a plan to fight this? We passed a resolution at our council
6: meeting last Wednesday to go to the large city mayors uh, and their group, which is a group of 30 and ask them to join us with a, a full public relations pushback, a, a professional one. Rather than all of us wailing in the wind, I think we have to do something as a, as a unit. And then also the large city mayors has to influence um, AMO, which is the Association of Municipal um, M- Municipalities of Ontario, Ontario, because they tend to be small towns and they're not going to be affected by this, but they carry a lot of weight with the province. So we have to get organized. And I've used the example of CUPE uh, reversing the decision a couple weeks ago on on education workers uh, because it was a full court press, and they even reversed on the notwithstanding clause. So it can be done, but it's just going to be really, really difficult, and we can't do it by ourselves. We've got a postcard going out to every home in Mississauga next Monday that takes a very complex bill it reduces it down to simple terms and shows people where the taxes will be hitting them.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if nothing else, this government or the, the premier has a history of walking back things that uh, elicit a very bad reaction. Yes, and I, I
6: used the term yesterday with somebody that we're going to QP them. and They said that for an English teacher, former English teacher, using that as a verb was a very big mistake. But <laughs> I think that's what we have to do.
1: Um. Yeah, and um, there's, uh, last week we were discussing uh, the other point in, in the new municipal laws that's causing a lot of anguish and pushback, and that is uh, the provision that, uh, with the strong mayor. So uh, Mississauga doesn't have that yet, right?
6: Mississauga doesn't have it yet, but they've, it's been touted. And I know Bonnie Crombie has Publicly stated, she's our mayor. She's publicly stated to her council and anybody that wants to listen that she would never exercise
0: those.
1: Okay, well, that's that's interesting. Uh, what do you think when you see it in Toronto? And now, if it's a matter of a quote provincial priority, something can be passed with just a third of the votes. Yes, and
6: it's it's a third of the vote. It, that's outrageous. That is a fundamental attack on democracy. And it's, in my opinion, not even worth considering, but this government seems to do just whatever the heck it pleases. It just sold, for example, eight pieces of Metrolink's land. Not one of them, they all went to private developers. If they cared about uh, affordable housing, they would have stipulated that that crown land should have been sold to people who were going to build affordable housing, but they didn't. So I don't trust them one little bit. They can move rules and change bylaws and do whatever they, or bills and do whatever they want. They just seem to be out of control.
1: Uh, Yeah, and uh, you mentioned affordable housing and uh, the average house price in Mississauga being around a million dollars. Do you think that this will result in building any additional affordable housing? Our staff is predicting it
6: reduces the affordable housing we had in the pipe by 40%.
0: That's a lot.
6: <laughs> that's a chunk. If, if this bill is supposed to be helping us build affordable housing, well, all the financial ramifications of it have just now reduced our affordable housing in the pipe by 40%.
1: And, and how so? What, kind, what do you have in the pipe and, and uh, uh, where does the money come from sort of specifically?
6: Well, what we do right now is uh, as uh, building permits are coming in and plans are coming in, we ask for, we did ask for 5% affordable units. We, we upped that to 10% recently. And the developers who don't want to do it have been giving us cash in lieu, which we can then put into a fund for people like Habitat for Humanity to come along and do some sort of uh, affordable full building. So we have been either putting the money away or asking the developers to put 5 to 10% affordable units in all their buildings. That is no longer possible.
1: So is that on top of your regular development charges? Is it a separate line for the developers? It would be a separate line for the developers, yes. And could you, I mean, does does the new law specifically prohibit that? Yes, it does. Oh, OK. Um, I guess... Uh, there are you know- no loopholes,
6: Libby. This There are no loopholes in this bill. And it is so complex, it took our staff a couple of weeks to prepare a report for us to understand it. And we're in the business. And the, the regular taxpayer who looks at this just scratches their head and said, it's impossible to, to unwind. So that's why we're putting the postcard out, which simplifies it to the point where they understand the new Ford tax is going to hurt them.
1: Okay, well, uh, make sure that you uh, email us a copy of that postcard. I'd like to look at it. And yes, uh, these bills that pass stunningly quickly are very complicated and difficult to read. And uh, thank you for drilling down on it. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Libby. I really appreciate your time. Okay, bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today.